0: Hi Katie, sorry I'm late.
1: You'd better have a good excuse.
0: I actually do. I just jumped in the uh, lake just near my house. Why? Yeah, it felt like a kind of mad thing to do.
1: It's November.
0: I know, but it's also 15 degrees. But it was really, really cold. And it's not something I do. I've got a friend staying with me who's into that kind of Wim Hof method. Do you know what
1: that is? Wim Hof. Is is that a metro station?
0: (laughs) No, it's a Dutch man and like... A guy who's known as the Iceman who like, has created this method around cold water therapy. I actually don't really know anything about it. We should look into this. I think it's quite interesting. But it seems to, there seems to be more and more research about it having great health benefits. So I thought I'd give it a try. I was just mainly very cold.
1: I mean, you sound very perky now. So this should be quite a nice episode. So maybe you should jump into a cold lake every week. Can I not? Yeah, it might be 15 degrees there now, but uh, winter is definitely here. Well, it's here in Paris anyway. And uh, actually, I'm kind of happy that it's wintry now, because it's a great reason to wrap yourself up and listen to The Europeans, your weekly non-boring catch-up about stuff that's been happening around Europe. And uh, what have we got coming up this week?
0: Well, this week we're going to be talking about a big topic, time. Most of us feel like we don't have enough of it, but why is that? And why is it that some people seem to have more time than others? And can we do anything to make that division of time fairer? Mm -hmm. These are all questions that our guest this week has spent a lot of time thinking about as one of the co-coordinators of the fascinating Barcelona Time Use Initiative. Keep listening to hear our chat with Ariadna gwey in just a few minutes after we chat about who has had a good week and who has had a bad week
1: in Europe. Is it going to be in just a few minutes? It might be more than a few. Your sense of time has been warped by all this time chat. What is a few? <laughs> it's been so philosophical since you jumped into that leg. Anyway. Thank you. Good week, bad week. Let's do it. Bad week,
0: bad week. Who has had a bad week, Katie?
1: I am giving bad week to the European Commission because of an academic study that shows, once and for all, just how bad the European Commission is at communicating what it actually does. It's not really a secret that EU politics can be complicated. We set up this podcast partly because you and I are Europeans who live outside the Brussels bubble, but we're interested in trying to figure out how EU institutions work. And it's taken us five years just to figure out the difference between the Council of Europe and the European Council. Mm. And, you know, part of the reason that the EU often feels impenetrable is because citizens don't get very well educated about it. I mean, we grew up in a Britain that was still part of the EU, but I didn't learn anything at school about how EU laws get made. Did you?
0: Oh, no, definitely not. I even studied politics. At school,
1: And yes, okay, we did grow up in a super Eurosceptic country. But I think it's still true of a lot of kids growing up across the EU today that they don't get taught that much in schools about how the EU works. So that is part of it. We do need better civic education. But the other big reason why EU politics often feels intimidating and confusing is that European institutions themselves have historically been very bad at communicating. They use loads of jargon, loads of acronyms, just stuff that normal citizens with jobs and lives aren't going to understand. I'd like to read you the first line of a European Commission press release from October 28th. So pretty recent. Are you ready? Oh, hit me. Today, the European Commission has adopted an amendment to the State Aid Temporary Crisis Framework to enable member states to continue to use the flexibility foreseen under state aid rules to support the economy in the context of Russia's war against Ukraine. Any ideas?
0: I was actually trying quite hard. Um, (laughs) And yeah, no...
1: Shout out to Sarah Wheaton at Politico. Uh, She's the one who flagged up this deliciously boring press release from the Commission in her reporting. And I think the reason that EU statements tend to get written in this extremely dull way is because they're very worried about saying something that one member state or another is going to get pissed off about. So the language ends up being so diplomatically careful that it barely makes sense. Like, apart from the fact that the statement has got something to do with the war in Ukraine, I have no idea what's going on. And it's incredibly frustrating, Dominic.
0: It is. It is. It is. I hear you and I agree with you. But uh, what is this academic study into it and what have they found?
1: Oh, yeah. Sorry, I, I got distracted because i I getting raged by jargony English. Yes. Um, so the study was done by Christian Rao. He's a researcher at the VZB, which is the Berlin Social Science Centre. He analysed 45,000 European Commission press releases published over the past 35 years. And he used something called the Flesh kincaid score, which is a well-established method for gauging how complicated a piece of writing is. Uh, It combines things like sentence length, word length. Uh, Christian also uses quite clever method to measure how jargony the commission is. So he used Google Books. He took all of the words that appear in all of the books published on Google Books in English Which, if you think about it, is like this huge database of words. Mm. And then he took the European Commission press releases and he made a comparison between how frequently the words used in the press releases appear in Google Books. And his conclusion is that the European Commission uses lots of weird jargony words that normal people don't use, which isn't very surprising, but it's nice to see some research confirming it.
0: I like that he decided to do this research. I think it's a really good use of his time. Me too. But is the Commission actually considerably worse at this than other national governments, do you think?
1: It is. Uh, So that's one of the other comparisons that Christian did. He compared the Commission's press releases with those of national governments. And that is one potential limitation of his study, because Christian was looking at how the Commission communicates in English, and there's not that many... Anglophone governments here in Europe. Mm. Um, so he compared the commission with the UK and Irish national governments, and there at least it was pretty clear that the commission is much worse at communicating in an understandable way than either of those national governments.
0: So you say he was looking at press releases, right? Mm-hmm. And press releases are written for journalists who are then meant to like translate what's in the press release and communicate it to the people. So. Do you think we should like give some of the commission officials a bit of a break and say that the journalists need to work out how to translate these things? I'm already not convinced saying it.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good point. Like, You could argue that it is the job of journalists like me to demystify and explain what institutions are doing. That's part of what we do on this podcast. But in Brussels, like trying to decipher what the EU is actually trying to say ends up being really a lot of journalists' job. Um, Christian quoted one journalist who told him that half of their work is translating EU press releases into normal person language. And the problem is that journalists are stretched incredibly thin. There are like fewer journalists than ever trying to do more and more work because of newsroom budgets being slashed, for one thing. And if a press release is truly incomprehensible, to be honest, a journalist might just move on and decide to write about something else. And I just think that the EU is failing to help itself by expecting journalists to do all of that work of translating what it says into normal person language. When we were growing up in Britain, the EU was stereotyped hugely in the national media as being this incredibly boring bureaucratic place where people made incomprehensible decisions about the length that bananas could be or whatever. And it didn't really matter if that wasn't really true We've seen in the UK what happens if journalists just report in the national media outlets that everything that happens in Brussels is incomprehensible. I mean, I'm not saying that if there'd just been better press releases, British tabloid newspapers wouldn't have pushed this narrative that Eurocrats spend all of their time regulating bananas. But I do think it would have been a bit more difficult for them to push that narrative. And Christian actually talks in the study about the relationship between populism and bad communication. He points out, and I quote, Where populists demonise an unelected Brussels elite, they speak about the European Commission. And the more space that the Commission leaves for ambiguity about what it's actually doing, the more space there is for populists to put their own spin on things. Have
0: the EU Commission responded to the findings of this study yet? And is there any sign that they're trying to do things better?
1: I haven't seen a response, but I would need to wade through the many, many press releases in this boring list. I mean, look, I've just spent a good few minutes ranting about the European Commission being bad at communicating. To their credit, I do want to say that I think they have actually got a lot better in the last few years at communicating on social media. And that's really important because that's like a direct line of communications with actual voters. And you do quite often these days see EU politicians like going viral for, I don't know, like tweeting a sassy reply to Elon Musk or whatever. So things have actually improved on that front. But yeah, a lot of people still get their news via mainstream news outlets in the national media. And I do think the commission would do itself a favour if it Took what Christian is saying on board and made it easier for journalists to explain what the EU is doing with our tax money. Um, anyway, that is my rant finished. It was a really interesting study and it is written in understandable English. Yay! Which is really nice, obviously, because of the subject matter, uh, but also because academics are also bad at writing in plain English often. I will post the study in the show notes. Um, I'm also really interested to hear from listeners about whether the EU is as bad at communicating in their languages as they are in English. I don't feel like it's quite as bad in French, but maybe I'm imagining it. Uh, But anyway, yeah, let us know your thoughts. Hello at europeanspodcast.com. Who has had a good week?
0: It's been a good week for young people living in Germany and France after transport authorities announced over the weekend that they are planning on releasing a new special youth rail ticket that will provide the young'uns with reduced price tickets for trains between France and Germany.
1: That's fantastic. Am I a young person? Living in France? I
0: actually don't know yet because the details are still to be announced um, and we probably won't know more until January. All we really know for now is why they're doing it or at least the reasons they are giving as to why. And that was, I thought, in this case, enough of a reason for us to talk about it because of what they said. Germany's Minister for Transport and Digital Affairs, a guy called Volker Wissing, said. In order to achieve our climate goals for the transport sector, we have to convince even more people to travel by train. To do this, we have to make attractive offers. And he went on to say, I am convinced that such a ticket will strengthen both the relationship between our two countries and the climate-friendly mode of rail.
1: It's interesting that he's trying to make this sound like it's about more than train tickets because France and Germany usually seen as a very important relationship in the EU, two big economies, whatever but they've had a bit of a bust-up recently, haven't they?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, things between France and Germany have been uh, a little bit tense, which has been concerning for many within the EU, as yeah, traditionally France and Germany work together and they're often referred to as jointly being the motor of the EU. And they often, in the past, even if they would disagree about things, they would coordinate their positions on key issues before all the countries come together and meet so that they could then drive the agenda for good or for bad. Mm. But lately, the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, and the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, have found themselves disagreeing on some quite major things, things like whether or not to introduce a gas price cap across the EU. On that one, Germany did eventually agree that a price cap could happen. But there have been other topics where the disagreements haven't really resolved, um, such as around the big existential question of how the EU should be a positioning itself in relation to China. And Schultz actually went off to China on his own last week and was criticised by many for seeming to prioritise German interests over the EU interests as a bloc. Macron had actually suggested that they go together. That didn't happen.
1: It would have been more fun to go with a friend anyway, don't you think? Absolutely,
0: but maybe they're not friends. Maybe <laughs> that's the not. problem, Katie. <laughs> Anyway, there were also disagreements about a gas pipeline and about air and missile defence systems. So quite a list of disagreements. And this is just the beginning. So maybe this idea to give cheap international train tickets to young people is the first sign of relations between the two countries starting to thaw. Or perhaps it's just the only thing that they could agree on, in which case that's quite concerning, really. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's give train tickets to young people. Okay. Everything else is terrible.
0: Anyway, in all seriousness, I do think this scheme could be a gesture to show that the two countries do have some shared values and interests and can cooperate. It seemed like that from the statement from the German transport minister anyway and his French counterpart, Clement Bonne, also released a pretty fuzzy statement about travel and exchange being at the heart of the Franco-German relationship. So they are definitely trying to frame it as a positive bilateral exchange, obviously with the environment front and centre – And I do hope it works and that the offer is good for the young people of Germany and France once the details are released, because there was actually a really heartwarming piece of research that came out recently looking into that scheme where Germany handed out nine euro per month tickets that allowed people to travel on almost all public transport over the summer this year. Do you remember?
1: Yes. What an amazing thing.
0: And this research that's just been published suggests that the scheme boosted social contact and general participation of low income households and therefore reduced loneliness and increased quality of life for the people who took up the offer. So I found that really pleasing to read and that this scheme which was brought in to offset the cost of living crisis we find ourselves in now had such a positive effect on so many people. It really worked. So please take note other countries
1: please. I'm glad that that scheme's been getting some some good press because trains should be cheap. I have had enough of trains being like twice as expensive as planes. It's like with, um, you know, alternative milks being like way more expensive than cow milk. Yeah, the things that are less bad for the planet need to be cheaper.
0: Yes, they should. And there has also been nice news from Germany recently that they are going to be... Following up on that nine euro scheme, now with a 49 euro monthly ticket, Mm. not as incredible a deal as the nine euro tickets, but still quite something that people could be paying around one euro 60 per day and can travel pretty much anywhere across the country with that ticket, apart from on intercity trains. So yeah, I think we can say it's been a good week for French and German young people who are hopefully going to be able to travel across each other's borders at a special price. And yes, we're still thin on details, but I think we should celebrate any attempts to make rail travel cheaper right now. Katie, you're French now and I'm now German and perhaps we will be too old for this scheme. But (laughs) if not, uh, then we should definitely take up this offer and go and visit each other loads.
1: Who do I need to lobby to make sure that the definition of young includes you and me?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Let's find that out. Regardless, I think it's about time that we take over the wheels of this Franco-German engine and bring everyone together. We are the secret engine. Or maybe we should just let some other countries take over the wheel of this engine. In Europe, for once.
1: It's a very annoying concept. It's very sort of smug and patronizing. Like, we're the biggest countries and we're the only ones that matter. I think it needs to be retired, frankly.
0: Let's let it go. Bye.
1: Before we move on, quick thank you to husbands of the show, Alex and Thomas, for suggesting this week's good and bad weeks, by the way. We should start paying them, you know?
0: We should. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Thomas.
1: We are swiftly approaching the fifth anniversary of this podcast at the end of November. And it's kind of hard to believe how far we've come over the past five years. Like this podcast has gone from being this scrappy little thing with quite crappy sound quality to something that gets nominated for big prizes. And we're really, really proud of everything that we've achieved against the odds. Given that we are completely independent, there is no big media outlet backing us. But that doesn't mean that this show is financially sustainable. It really isn't yet. (laughs) And why are you laughing?
0: Oh no, it was a kind of laugh cry, (laughs) just (laughs) despairing about the financial state of this podcast.
1: Anyway, back to optimism. It is in thanks in large part to the generous listeners that we have been able to keep going as long as we have done so far. So thank you so, so much to those of you who chip in a little bit each month so that we can pay for the production of the show. And this week we have two lovely new supporters to thank. Who are they, Dominic?
0: They are Agnes Nöel and Gietje Grootkoop. Thank you both so much. If you'd like to join them and gain access to our secret Facebook group or even receive a personalised voice message from Katie and me, then head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans Podcast. It's actually also a really great present for a friend or family member who likes the podcast too and Christmas is coming up. And if you get in there quickly with the voicemail level, which is €5 per month, Then we will try and record a voicemail for your loved one before Christmas.
1: They can open it under the tree. (laughs) Do you feel time poor, Dominic? Yes. (laughs) Okay, short answer. (laughs) Well, that's good. I guess we're not wasting any time talking about it. Uh I do too many
0: things and I don't have enough time to do all the things. Me too.
1: I mean, for me in recent months, I feel like things have been a bit better, but I've definitely had long periods where I've just felt like there aren't enough hours in the day. Um, we're going to put a photo on our Instagram page of me holding this picture that we have in our apartment of this monster shouting, no time. And my husband bought this picture because it made us laugh. But it made us laugh because it's how we felt a lot of the time in recent years. There have been times where it's felt like, if I'm going to get all of this work done, either I'm going to have to sleep less or maybe I can't see my friends or I'm going to have to sacrifice like washing myself or something. And I don't even have kids. Like, I don't know how people who care for others get everything done, genuinely. Uh, But yeah, clearly I am far from the only person to have felt like this. You feel like this. And there was a really disturbing survey done by Statista last year. Uh, I'll post it in the show notes so people can take a look. They asked 30,000 people around Europe whether they had experienced burnout or felt on the verge of it. Uh, Poland came top, 66% of Poles said that they had been burned out or close to it. Mm. France was the lowest on the list, and that was still 45% wow. of people who said that they had been on the verge of burnout or actually experienced it. So this is a problem. And over the summer, we got a message from a listener, Valentin Dupuy, who drew our attention to a super interesting set of policies in the city of Barcelona. It's called the Time Use Initiative, And it's not just about fighting burnout. It's about trying to improve people's lives in lots of ways by thinking more about time. Uh, For example, trying to better account for all the time that gets spent in society on unpaid work, especially for women. And in general, it's about trying to make time a more central idea in the design of policies Barcelona is not the only city that's been working on this, but it has become a leading voice in pushing for these kinds of policies. So we were really interested to hear more about them. So we rang up Ariadna Guesans, one of the coordinators of the Barcelona Time Use initiative to tell us more.
0: I wanted to start with quite a big question. Do you think time is a human right?
2: Yes, I have to say yes. It's not me only that thinks that, but there have been many theorists, especially Ulrich Muckenberger from Germany, that said that time should be a citizen's right, at least, because it's what gives us the possibility to develop as people, being able to have certain autonomy on how we organize our time, Taking into account that time for caring for others, time for social activities, time for democratic participation is equally important than paid work. Basically, the idea is that we all as citizens have the right to have a certain part of our time that is our own, that we can do with it as we please. And the 24 hours of our day are not all filled with our obligations or duties as citizens.
1: And was there a moment in your own life that made you realise why this idea of time poverty, of being time poor, was such an important thing to fight against?
2: Maybe it's not a moment, but I've been working for a big corporation for a very important part of my professional life with a culture of doing a lot of hours, maybe not so drastic as the London banking case, but uh, some days I couldn't even reach my dancing lessons at 8pm in the night. There is where I started to realize that this was not normal, that I shouldn't endure it and that I needed this outside life to really thrive as a person and to participate on everything I wanted to participate.
1: So Barcelona has been leading the way really in trying to come up with policies that give people back their time. But how new is this? Is it the first city in the world to do this or are you building on other people's work here?
2: In terms of time policies, public time policies, this began, especially with the feminist movement in Italy in the 80s. Feminists there started to say, hey, time to care for others is important. It's a critical part of our society. So we need to make sure that we have this time. So in Italy, there was a law called the Turco Law because of the ministry that presented it that started to say, hey, our cities need to think about how people use their time and design the city around that. This was later also adopted in France. And then in Catalonia, we have a very particular movement because it was not only from the institutions, but also came from civil society. And maybe this is the difference between Catalonia, Barcelona, and maybe what happened in Italy and France. But definitely... The movement here uh, was building on the experiences and uh, knowledge of those early feminists that talked about time to care.
0: And what kind of policies are you fighting for in Barcelona and what kind of policies exist already to protect people's time?
2: So there's a lot of policies because uh, changing our time use, it's like a cultural change. So it's not like one policy that will solve it all. First, in terms of work, what we defend as association is that we need to have working hours that are reduced when possible, more flexible, remote teleworking and so on. So in Barcelona, they have this network of companies committed to implement measures that improve uh, time for their workers. They have developed a lot of policies around care time, which are very interesting. Some of them are about giving time to caregivers to do their thing. So going to doctors, maybe just have some time to rest, a break from the caring, let's say. And during the pandemic, especially, they developed a service for child care for parents that were working from home that did not have a school for their children and so on. And this is something that continued after. Also, I think the whole concept of the city at 15 minutes. So trying to have the services at 15 minutes walking or by bike. And maybe the last one I would uh, highlight are the efforts to digitalize public services. So Barcelona has been doing a very big effort to make all issues you have to deal with the city council uh, digital also providing on-site support for those that are not as savvy with technology. And even recently, they opened a video conference service so that you are not doing completely digital, but still you don't have to go to the city council to solve your problem. So I think these are some of the policies that can be done. I was also reading about this really interesting idea of a time bank. Can you explain how that works? It's basically a community initiative that instead of working with money, they work with time. So, for example, if I'm quite good at English, I would go with my neighbor and do conversation classes with him. And then later on, someone else in the time bank will go to my home and fix my stove because I have no idea how to do that. So we are changing our knowledge and our time with no money involved. And I think it's really great because it goes way beyond this exchange. It has created a network of people that help each other at the end. With COVID, we saw that this network was working because many of these time banks then repurposed to bring, for example, food and supplies to those on lockdown that couldn't get out or even participated on food banks that were organized during the worst part of the crisis and so on.
0: You mentioned earlier that these time policies grew out of uh, the feminist movement and women are much more likely to suffer from a lack of time than men um, due to caring for the elderly and the younger in society and the expectation that they should do that caring and a lot of the work at home still, even today. How can we fix that?
2: It's very complicated because, again, it's a cultural change. So I think it has to have two parts. First, it's the awareness part. I think we have gone a long way the last years talking about co-responsibility, about how we should redistribute care tasks and so on, because there's a part on which each individual has to take that decision. But beyond the awareness part, I think that we also need to focus on what are the infrastructures we have to really care for others. And this is, of course, childcare infrastructures, maternal and parental leaves, and so on. But it's also thinking... How are we organizing our working time? And does this organization allow us, for example, to go pick our kids from school or go to care for our elderly relatives and so on? So this infrastructure that is more social, that I think can be modified from the public policy arena that needs to be reimagined, I would say, to really make sure that it's not centered on paid work, but that it takes care time as a key pillar of how we are organizing ourselves.
1: Everything that you're talking about makes complete sense to me as somebody who feels like they don't have enough time. Um, But I'm curious about like what research has been done to support all of these kind of policies. Has there been any scientific research done about the effect that time poverty has on our health?
2: There's a full field of medicine dedicated to that. They gained the Nobel Prize actually in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, which is chronobiology. Chronobiology is the science that studies our internal rhythms. When we get sleepy, when we get hungry, it regulates our hormone levels, our blood pressure, and so on in a 24-hour cycle. There's abundant research linking changes on these circadian rhythms to increased risk of cardiovascular disease, mental illnesses, such as anxiety or depression, to diabetes and obesity, and in extreme cases, to an increased risk of certain types of cancer. The World Health Organization recognizes night shift work as a factor of uh, increased cancer risk. So it's something that is quite established on the field. And what uh, people don't realize is that circadian rhythms get altered because of how we use our time. So they are regulated basically by sunlight, so how much sun we receive in the morning and how dark it is in the night, and because of the times we eat. If we are really regular eating our meals, we will be better regulated in terms of our circadian rhythms. If we can get up on the morning when the sun gets up and go to sleep, in the dark, we will be better regulated. If we lost sleep, which is, I think, one of the big diseases in our world today, that we don't have enough sleep, these circadian rhythms also get deregulated.
0: This brings us on nicely to talking about daylight savings time, which has been a big debate in Europe for many years um, about whether or not to scrap this tradition of the clocks being moved forward and backward twice a year, apparently to adjust for the seasons. The European Parliament actually voted to scrap this adjustment of clocks two years ago or three years ago, but nothing has happened yet. Where do you stand on this argument? Do you think we should not be changing the clocks here in Europe?
2: Our position is that, yes, we should scrap a clock change and that we have to try to be on the time zone that is closer to our geographical position.
0: Are there particular places in Europe where you feel like it's stark that it's not aligned? that the time zone that we sit in is not aligned with the position of the sun.
2: So generally speaking, summertime is not aligned the geographical zone usually is the winter time. So I think that the worst countries in terms of Europe are all these western countries that are in central european time when they are really in western. So they are more aligned with london time.
1: Although if we had a system where we weren't on the same time as Poland, Dominic, we might have some problems for this podcast. <laughs> this is it's very convenient for us that we're aligned with Warsaw. True. I actually had another question about all of this um, stuff to do with body clocks. You are speaking to us from a country where people tend to eat late and socialize late in the evenings. Is that a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to time poverty? Like, what difference does our culture make?
2: So I would say that it's a bad thing in terms of health, uh, mostly because we eat late and we socialize late, but then we wake up at the same time as you guys. So we are basically losing sleep. (laughs) And then I think there's another part of the culture that is really important, which is the work culture of each country. There are countries, and Spain is one of them, where it is really valued to be in the office regardless of whether you have work to do, right? So people tend to stay there long hours without being really productive. And this clearly goes against having time for your own needs. So I think that these are a very important part of the culture that we need to start changing. And I think it is changing, especially with younger generations, uh, at least here in Spain. So let's hope we are on the right track on that sense. But I would say that it's key to change that.
0: In 2021, you created the Barcelona Declaration on Time Policies, which is a political declaration signed by people and organizations all over the world committing to develop policies that promote the right to time. Since then, have you seen any encouraging policies adopted anywhere?
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, We've seen an increased interest, whatever we organize, that we have more people and more people joining and being interested about this issue. We have created a network of cities that are implementing time policies, an international network. Now we are more than 30 cities from Europe, but also from Latin America, and we hope to expand it further. And also, as a consequence of the declaration, we've created a working group to actually do a specific proposal to end clock changes for Europe. So, yeah, we are optimistic. (laughs)
1: going back in winter when i was younger because it meant an extra hour in bed but now that we're getting old you and i were together in brussels when the clocks went back a couple of weekends ago and we were both just lying there awake at 6 30 what's wrong with
0: us well it's also because we went to bed at 10 o'clock the night before which is (laughs) then nine o'clock in the new time
1: don't tell people that they're never going to give us the young person train tickets (laughs) Thank you so much to Ariadna for joining us. If you would like to read more about Barcelona's time policies, you can go to timeuse.barcelona. what have you been enjoying this week?
0: And Well, I've actually got a time-related piece of isolation inspiration today. Coincidentally, I happened to read an essay by the British writer Zadie Smith, which is part of her collection of lockdown essays called Intimations, that she published very early on in the pandemic, uh, back in July 2020. And the essay that struck me following our conversation with Ariadne was an essay called Something to Do. And in it, Smith is musing about time, but from a very very different angle to the conversation we just had. She's looking at it from the perspective of an artist and the question of why do we choose to spend time making art? Hmm. She explores the stark division between how we or how society looks at time spent on more traditional labour compared to time spent on the labor of making art. And she also touches on what she calls the time explosion that so many of us had um, when the world went into lockdown, and how that transformed the way we all experienced time, at least during that time, as something that needed filling, at least for a while. I know it's hard to remember that now. But with that time explosion, many of us started filling our time with art for the first time ever, like how many people picked up drawing or writing or playing the piano or making sourdough bread? Does that count as art?
1: Sure it does. If it's good. I did a a cross stitch of a Japanese anime character.
0: Well, there you go. (laughs) How many of us have kept up these artistic time-filling activities? Probably not so many. You're not still cross-stitching, are you?
1: No, but that's because I finished it off. Okay. (laughs) And I don't want to get another one.
0: It's over. (laughs) Can't be asked. Anyway, it's really interesting to read about her ideas around filling time and about the value of art. Oh. It's a beautiful piece of writing. Go check it out. What have you been enjoying?
1: Well, I was also inspired to share something time-based, something that's made me feel less time-poor personally, and that is my online planner.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Here we go. I
1: wasn't really sure whether I should talk about it. Katie is part
0: of a cult, everyone. I'm worried about her.
1: It's not a cult. It's just such a good planner that I tell everyone I see about it. And when I saw Dominic, I spent maybe half of our time talking about how amazing my planner is. But it's for a good cause. It's an app called Notion. Some of you might have heard of it. And you can use it for lots of different things besides planning things. Uh, but I use it to plan my week out. Uh, I used to be one of these people that keeps to-do lists on bits of paper. it's really messy and like hard to keep track of things. And uh, the thing I really like about this is that you can move tasks around from day to day within the week, which sounds really obvious, but it really helps me to feel like less overwhelmed than these little scraps of paper that I was using. It's very customizable, so you can have a play with it and see if it works for you. It's Mm. very pretty. You can change the picture at the top to like an astronaut or some nice trees or whatever. I am sounding a bit crazy now, so I'm going to stop talking and say, uh, give it a go if you would like. I'm going to share a link for my template so that people can have a look at it.
0: And before we wrap up, Isolation Inspiration, I just want to send some waves of solidarity and love to all the people working in the arts in England who had pretty horrible news, a lot of people, because they were quite massive cuts to arts funding um, with some organisations maybe not being able to continue because of that so yeah it's a really hard time to be an artist in England and yeah just wanted to say that I'm thinking of them go and give an English artist a hug
1: or do we want to give them hugs or money both are necessary hugs and money
0: I spotted a fun piece of reporting from Zeeland, a coastal province in the southwest of the Netherlands, where some entrepreneurial kids at high school were annoyed with the price of mayonnaise in the school canteen. And they've taken the issue into their own hands and started dealing mayonnaise from their lockers (laughs) and undercutting the canteen.
1: That's amazing. I love this story. It's got everything. My favourite condiment, entrepreneurial children, just love it
0: and a bit of illegal behavior the i don't think it is actually illegal um but the young students were fed up with having to pay 20 cents for mayonnaise on their chicken burgers. So they started selling it from their lockers at 10 cents Mm. and they let people have as big a dollop of mayonnaise as they like.
1: They're going to go bankrupt
0: before too long, surely. Well, we'll see about it. The thing I'm worried about is that when they were asked in this news report what the canteen staff think about it, they were like, oh, we've been keeping it secret. (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> they were there being filmed by the local news camera crew so i wonder what happened when the canteen staff found out we'll have to do a deeper investigative report i think
1: as our resident mayonnaise correspondent sign me up that is it for this week Next week, we've got a really interesting episode coming up. We're going to be talking about something that we've been thinking about a lot recently, especially with the COP27 climate talks underway. And that is this idea of climate refugees, people being forced to leave home because of climate change. This is something that is happening already. It is not a future problem that we might have to one day worry about. But are people in power doing anything to address it? Tune in next week if you want to find out. In the meantime, we can be found on Twitter, Still, for now, at EuropeansPod. We're also on Instagram at EuropeansPodcast.
0: We might appear on one of the new Twitter alternatives soon, but we're still having a look into it.
1: Yes, stay tuned.
0: This week's show was produced by Katie Lee and Wojciech Alexiak. Thank you both. You're welcome. And this podcast is part of the Are We Europe audio family. Go check out everything they're doing in their beautiful magazines. I just saw one in my local magazine shop and was like, oh, that looks nice. Oh, that's Are We Europe.
1: That's so cool. Go
0: to areweeurope.eu.
1: Have a good week, everyone. Bye. Adieu.